Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Alina. And welcome to Poetry John's episode four. Today we're excited to have Gabriel Ojeda Sage in the studio. Gabe is a Latino queer Leo living in Philadelphia. His first collection, Oil and Candle, was released by Timeless Infinite Light this year. And it's a set of writings on Santeria, war, and the precarity of Latino American lives. He is also the author of the chapbooks, Jogs, a rewriting of the joy of gay sex, Night, Chickadees, a collection of Cher's tweets on systemic racism and violence, and Where Everything is in Halves, poems against death through the legend of Zelda. Gabe, we are so excited to have you. Welcome. <laughs> I'm excited to be here. It's a hot July day, and this is a good thing to be doing. <laughs> You're, you're wearing overalls. And, I am. And a shirt. Shorteralls, in fact. Shorteralls, ex- <laughs> <laughs> correction noted. And what does your shirt say? Um, it says, uh, I'm the princess, that's why. This is my um, like secret Santa gift from a, a good high school friend of mine. And this is usually a shirt I sleep in, but today I just felt like it was the appropriate thing to wear. <laughs> I think it is. I think... Yeah, it's uh, it's telling the listeners something about yourself, which is good. <laughs> um, what else? So they know now. Our listeners know your horoscope sign as yeah, well as right. the names of your books. Um, is there anything else you would like to tell us as far as your background, how you ended up in Philly, um, things like that? Let's see. Well, the horoscope sign is a good start because a lot of people then just say, no, I'm not dealing with that anymore. <laughs> um, like you know, whatever you say, somebody doesn't like Leos, I guess. Um, I lived in Miami since I was like two years old until 18, um, and I when I lived there I did not like Miami. Now I love Miami. My, visiting Miami is the best thing ever. Living there is like weird. Um, and I came to Philly to go to college. <laughs> uh, I went to Penn, and I just graduated in May, so now I have what they call a degree, um, and I'm figuring out what to do with it. So <laughs> that's where I'm at. Um, and I'm staying in Philly. Uh, my boyfriend is here, so we're having a good time. So I'll be here for a while. Yay. Very happy to hear it personally. Uh, I also hear you've been busy with a side project, which is catching some damn Pokemon. <laughs> which is not as easy as it sounds sometimes. Yeah, I'm like uh, knee deep, uh, face deep into Pokemon Go right now. Um, and your neighborhood is full of Doduos. If you, what? If you, I had no if idea. If you must know. South uh, Philly. Yeah, Whoa. South Philly. Um, there are three Doduos nearby, which I will probably catch after <laughs> this is done. Um, are you stressed that you're not catching them right now? No. Uh, I feel like they'll be there. <laughs> like, they're so... They're like, you know, it really is just a glorified GPS. And they just sort of put a little <laughs> chunk of data next to people's houses. And they don't really go away. They don't have anything better to do. <laughs> so um, at some point, I've got a date with some two-headed bird monsters that I will put into my digital, like, zoo. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that's what I'm doing. Um, I'm getting a lot of exercise. I'm a very lazy person, really, um, physically. <laughs> so this is, like, the most I've done. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we were talking about this before you came here, Emma, that uh, this is perhaps part of a conspiracy by Michelle Obama to get kids to move. Brilliant. <laughs> that would be so we're brilliant. We're not saying it's true, but we're not saying it's not true. Oh, I had not even considered. The child in my heart is getting much skinnier. <laughs> <laughs> my inner child is so fit right now. Um, it's interesting to see all the happenings around it. You know, there's like that 19 year old girl who found a man's body in a yes, river right, when she was right. looking for water Pokemon. <laughs> and then there's been this Twitter outcry where people are like, this is good for mental health. People who identify as depressed are like, this is the most I've been out of the house in months. Oh, did you uh, see that heart- heartwarming story about 
this white guy was playing the Pokemon game late at night and like it took him outside and he found what he initially described as two sketchy looking people, two younger black guys. <laughs> but this story okay. became this like story of like friendship and collaboration where like they're like, yo, man, are you looking for like such and such? And he's like, yeah. And they're like, oh, it's over here. <laughs> and so he like posted this on the on the internet as a way to like Wow. Call for like Pokemon game as a great unifier. The heartwarming like, story of a man realizing two other people are people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh wait, no, I forgot the part about the cop. So the oh, this cop okay. came over and was like, "What are you guys up to? Is this a drug deal?" And then like, older white <laughs> oh, guy had to like vouch for younger black uh, men. As, I guess, like, this really does sound like a chain email, like like yeah, a late nineties well, chain email kind of thing. It's funny that you say that because it's being circulated as like a weird like screenshot from a message board, like. I guess the guy didn't want his name on it, but it is a little bit like um, Pokemon bringing families together, like cue the rainbow kind of thing. In in the sense that, like, while you walk around playing, you start to recognize the body language of people also playing Pokemon Go. It's this like very specific slow walk where it looks almost like they're lost and they're trying to figure out the address of somewhere that they're supposed to go, and they're like maybe a block away, but they can't tell. But in this case, they're, like, actually just hunting, like... So, like, as distinct from, like, Tindering or, like, texting or, like, whatever. It's, It's like, like, a certain kind of body language. It's, like, they're very alert. Like, they know that at any point something around them could be a Pokemon, but they also, like, need to go. So, it's a walk that is slow and alert, and, and suddenly, like, you start playing and you just... You recognize Could it. we call it the Pokemon Go strut? It's it's, like, it's a little yeah, it's like that. It's sort of like it's honestly like Gaydar, but it's like <laughs> Pokemon Go. Um, so I've made a weird amount of uh, slight acquaintances. So I have like one last question about this game because I, I just oh please know. I can talk for it forever about it. Are there does it ever take you or try to like put you anywhere illogical, dangerous? Is the game and as much as like mm. it uses GPS, is it aware like if it puts a Pokemon in like a lake or like in the middle of a freeway? Um, I guess. And you're not looking. <laughs> like my guess is that yes, I haven't had an experience yet with that. Um, there are like like water Pokemon are supposed to be like mostly around bodies of water. So, um, like if you go to the beach, they're supposed to be like on the coast. And I think the assumption is that you're not going to go into the ocean. But I was thinking today about this actually. Like if I was on a boat, would there be Pokemon around me? Like could I feasibly catch something that is just, like, just off the boat? Um, and I think the answer is yes. I'm, I'm going to guess that they do. But, like, it's not a game that's, like, please proceed into the in, into the ocean. Like, it doesn't really try to get you anywhere. Um, in fact, it just has very little directions. Like, you just open it, and it's like, there is a Pokemon nearby. And, like, good luck. <laughs> what is that one at a funeral in front of the casket? Have you seen that? It's, it's become a meme. <laughs> I haven't seen this. Yeah. There is some great photos of like... That the... might be an honor. I don't know. <laughs> like, to be visited, up, yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. There are some Pokemon though that would like not be an honor to be visited by in your Which funeral. ones? If you are comfortable naming Talk names. shit on some Pokemon. Um, well, there's like, like Mr. Mime, who's this really creepy, like very often hated Pokemon who's just like a mime, quite literally. Um, and he's like, he has his hands up, like um, sort of like jazz hands. And he sort of dances, and I just like now I'm just stuck with this picture in my mind of like a very like like Catholic somber funeral and like Mr. a mime. strange little like digital mime in the back, um, jazz handsing it up. But you know. um, and I, I think I think it 
is worth mentioning Omari Akil's piece, which was really, really good. His real, he was so excited about the game, and he was thinking about it all night, and he goes out to play the next day and then had this awful realization that his life is literally in danger as a black man, getting all these strange looks wandering around. You know, he doesn't have, like, the freedom or the peace to wander around. So it's a really, really good piece. He says it more eloquently. Now. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I was, the first day that it came out, Facebook was two things. It was um, the news stories about Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, and then... Pokemon Go. Like, it was basically, that was it. And partly that sounds like, um, it almost sounds like a weird bathos. Like, it's like very serious thing and then like very comically um, silly thing. But at the same time, like, it, there is a weird relation that can be found between them. And like, I was sort of joking on Facebook, but I do actually mean it quite seriously, that you could get a whole phenomenology of walking from this game. Um, just like, who, who walks? Uh, how do you walk? How much? Um, and like what is it like to walk around in the world without an actual aim because like you can play Pokemon Go like saying like I'm walking to work now and I'll see what I get along the way but a lot of times you're just like I'm gonna go out see what I find and so like you know I'm like very often a femme presenting person and there's been times where I like am walking around playing Pokemon and I feel like people are looking at me in a weird way or something like that like you know even in this outfit today I was thinking about it while I was playing Pokemon and then like I was thinking about um, the first day, just stuff like uh, the the murders of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. In relationship to that, as um, Omari said, like it's just there is a certain danger in being in the world. So, Pokemon Go can almost be the source for which you can advocate for like um, the stay-at-home like activist position. Um, people talk a lot about like how do you protest if you like can't go to the march? Say you're disabled. Mm-hmm in some way like you can't walk or um you have a fear of that you'll be hurt in some way if you go outside and like pokemon go almost like puts that in a big perspective like this is why i care a lot about digital media and sort of like what i sometimes call critically maligned media and the reason why is that i think it presents like weird little things about ourselves um and the way we live just because of the the nature of the game or the movie or the TV show, like things like that. And, you know, I wouldn't call it that I like to write about pop culture, but it's like the game is constructed in this way. And because it's constructed in that way, it makes us think about this or that, mm-hmm. something like that. So, you know, Pokemon Go might be a good thing to write. Like, I think that Omari piece could be like 20 or 30 pages. Like it's, it's something that is so needs to be like digged into, but for sure, for sure. And when you were talking, I was wondering, too, how does the game call attention to, you know, if you are, quote-unquote, non-conforming in society's eyes, like, what is the pressure when you step outside to call as little attention to yourself as possible? And how does Pokemon Go point that out? You know, if you're doing something that's a little more conspicuous, you know, like walking around and doing the Pokemon Go strut, you know, right. how does that, you know, you're already non-conforming and then you're non-conforming in this way where you're just not, like, walking straight ahead and doing all these kind of, like, blend in, don't draw attention to mm-hmm. yourself. Yeah, I mean, being in the world, which is so like, unnecessary, and no, sorry, go. no, no, <laughs> you end up being like incentivized to loiter, basically, and you know, there's so many like difficult like positions already with that, and the fact that like loitering is criminalized, and being like standing next to a restaurant without having a reason to stand there is like considered a bad thing by law enforcement. So like, you know. Um, it doesn't really matter that actually there's like a gym there and you're going to stand and you're just going to battle it and you're going to have a good time and then you're going to go home. Like, say you're a person who would be targeted by the police in this case where like Omari's piece is about a black man. 
um, you know, you're in much more danger just because some virtual world has told you, like, hang out here. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's like this weird thing where the game, I think, on its surface is like, let's get exercise, let's go out into the world. <laughs> but the, like, entire premise of going out into the world is not a fair one. Um, so, yeah, no, I think it's I think it's an interesting thing to think about. Right. And what world is standing in a place still? you know, considered suspicious behavior. Exactly, yeah, yeah keep, right. Keep moving or else, like, we're coming for you. It's really bizarre. Yeah, right. Um, speaking of critically maligned media, was that the word? That was, yeah, that's my, the phrase I like. And pop culture, uh, which I also agree, sort of, it's sort of a way of, like, minimizing someone's work by saying that, I think, mm-hmm. or, like, trying to, like, speak about it a certain way. Right. It's, like, pop culture as in things in the world that we are responding to. Yeah, right. Um... Do you want to talk about the share tweets? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, so Night Chickadees was the um, chapbook that I wrote in 2015. Um, and it's hard to sort of say that I wrote it, really. But it's just a collection of um, slightly edited uh, in font and in image size share tweets. Um, I didn't change any words or anything like that. Um, they're all share tweets from the year before I like the year in which I wrote it, so I guess I wrote that in maybe like March of 2015, and so only anything from March of 2015 to March of 2014, um, and anything having to do with like racism or violence, um, but not just like any kind of violence, like a, a specifically targeted violence against a group of people. Um, so you know, share is like totally Twitter's. Um, dream account like everything about shares twitter is good everybody loves shares twitter um but in this case like she has a very specific lexicon and way of talking about stuff and i just thought it would be interesting to look at specifically how that language is applied to tragedies and stuff like that so you know share tweets on the day of eric garner's death about eric garner and she tweets about um an Indian man being assaulted or something like that. Um, I think that's the first poem in it. But then she also tweets about like SeaWorld and stuff and sort of compares the two. She uses these emojis and she uses a lot of, she has a lot of misspellings and stuff like that. So um, sort of the, the, the reason I did that was I just thought it would be interesting to take like um, the white female gay icon um, who's really big and amazing, really campy and has this, totally public and well-loved Twitter account and put it under a lot of pressure at once. So, um, and that's just by curating a certain amount of tweets about a certain subject. So just really push on them and see what they do. Um, and I think it's sort of like, I think the tweets, a lot of them just sort of explode uh, under pressure and don't really make a lot of sense or become really amazing, like, and really dreamy. And so as like a, as like a Latin queer person, like, looking at these tweets and being like thinking I'm supposed to love this woman and she's supposed to be my icon for like how to be gay. So what happens when we look at tragedies or something like that? And I don't know. I think it's sort of mean to say that she failed under the pressure of it. Cause actually her words are quite sincere about all the tragedies. And even though she makes these sort of childlike misspellings, um, they can be actually really helpful and sort of like sweet and interesting about the, about, like what she's about her subject matter um so yeah I mean it was sort of like a fun project but also sort of exhausting and came up with a lot of mixed results and it's a 
project that I've only read from like once. I feel really uncomfortable reading from it. Um, only because it's just like this list of just terrible violences. Like it's not very pleasant. I don't think. Um, though also it, it incentivizes people to laugh because like there's something that's supposed to be comedic about it. And so I don't know, that always makes me uncomfortable. Like I'm presenting this like supposedly comic material, but it's sort of becoming not comic. Um, but I'm not going to stop anybody from laughing or anything like that. So, you know, what do you do? <laughs> It's sort of the paradox of Cher's tweets themselves, where yeah. she, yeah, sometimes emojis don't belong in a statement, right. <laughs> like, or is that a way of introducing levity? That was like the interesting thing to me when I was reading it. It didn't seem like you were necessarily saying that like what she's doing is terrible, but mm -hmm. also like looking at them in that stream called attention to like, I would call them, I don't know, tone deaf choices that she makes. Yeah, very often tone deaf, but uh, but sometimes like a little bit like tone defining like it's sometimes those tweets I think sometimes told you how to deal with certain things like you know just like having the sort of comic but also useful qualities of replacing the word police with a pig emoji mm -hmm. like not just calling them pigs but then also having this like little tiny pink like pixelated thing um I don't know something about that seems useful to me I can't I don't know I've never been able really to identify it but um in a more difficult tweet, like she misspells like she misspells Eric Gardner's name as Eric Gardner, and something like that, I think, disturbs a little bit. Like, you know, what 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 do you do with like a a body that has been taken out of its physical context and is now like super digitized, and then just like slightly off now, um, with this sort of like silly misspelling that could have been easily caught. Those things I think are difficult, and I think that that's when it comes to be like a little tone deaf, but. I don't know, part of it is a camp thing, like, camp can be, camp I think often gets a bad rap as being like, we're gonna make jokes about everything and like, have a good time, but a lot of times it can be like, a very sincere way of like, dealing with the world, um, and, you know, presenting a world that is not so fun for, like, queer individuals or queer aligned individuals or whatever, um, and making it slightly more presentable or whatever, so... If you deal with shared tweets in that light, sometimes it can be a little bit uh, helpful, I think, in dealing with these tragedies. So, yeah, I, I, I think when that project started, I thought maybe it would be like, look at how Cher mishandles these things. But then as I went along, I was like, oh, wait, there's actually like much more to be said and maybe much more interesting and good things. <laughs> I had a thought here, which is like, so there's this and then there's your rewriting of The Joy of Gay Sex and then there's other projects where I... It seems to me someone, or you, just completely independently, which is brilliant. What, what, how did you decide that like anything could be fodder for poetry? Because I feel like this took me years to understand, and like even having like taken poetry workshops where you're mm -hmm. still like taught to think about poetry a certain way. Was that something that happened to you when you were an undergrad at Penn or before that? Yeah, I think I was taught it honestly. Um, it would be very difficult for me to take credit as that being like sort of an original idea. So. The first project that I think came about with a, a sense of like found writing would be Jogs, that rewriting of The Joy of Gay Sex 1977 edition. And that's the first edition. Um, that came about because I read uh, Zong by M. Norbessi Phillips, in, or Philip, in a class of Charles Bernstein. So it was this class of Charles Bernstein at Penn that was about the language poets um, and then experimental poetry after 
1975. So his crew and then sort of like people sort of associated with those movements and some of the other experimental writing of the contemporary age. And I, and I read Zong and was like totally like, this is amazing. And then I saw um, some performance piece, which actually now I can't remember the name of the artist, which is a shame, but at some point I'll figure it out, um, where he... He sort of stopped his performance at one point and was like, have you guys read the Joy of Gay Sex, like, 1977 edition? Because it's really funny. Um, and he read this thing, and he was just like, look how sort of cheesy this is. Like, they're talking about, like, um, the one example I remember is he read the section on discotheques, uh, which already gives you a hint that it's, like, really outdated because it's called discotheques. Um, and the, it mentions, like, remember this is a, a manual, a life manual, a self-help book, so it's, like, it's supposed to tell you what you as a gay man will find at the club. Um, and he mentions, like, the authors mention peanuts, like, being at the bar, and that there will be, like, an old pornographic film playing on the sidewall. And it's just so 70s. Like, there's something so painfully 70s about this book. And I don't know, at some point something clicked, and I was like, let me just go in and really dig into this weird book and make some stuff and I think it's a sort of like it's a it's a book that I don't read from anymore and I don't really market it in any way because it for me is like the first real poetry thing that I did and maybe I just am a little embarrassed about it like you know because it's like something I did when I was really young and I'm still pretty young but like you know that was like what three years ago or so and you know I don't really deal with it anymore but there was a lot I think that book sort of taught me how to write in a sense like here's some stuff you can do with words and the language of the original source text is so campy and it's so sort of interesting and it's I think it's very wholeheartedly sad um and messing with that I think I got a sense of like the way that I write now which is extremely like very often very campy um totally always having an eye towards being funny but also being like wholeheartedly sad and a little disturbing and so um you know I don't know what my poetry writing was like before that I couldn't really tell you it was probably very sparse and not really focused at all but I think after that I wanted to write all my poems sort of like that um sort of like they were from a 1977 gay sex manual <laughs> um best poetic philosophy <laughs> I've ever heard right you know it's I was so sort of enraptured by it that I was like you know why ever leave here and then I guess I just sort of started writing more about like what we were, what I just said was like critically maligned media because I interacted with so much of it. Like mm -hmm. I played so many video games as a kid. It was like at a certain point it was like, and I still do play so many video games. At a certain point it's like, um, if I'm going to write about something, why not write about the thing that takes up, what, 30% of my given time? Um, so, you know, stuff like the Zelda project or um, I had a recent poem about the Binding of Isaac, which I actually really enjoyed, which is another game. Um, yeah, how could I not write about video games if I spent my, like, entire life playing them and they affected my mood and my ideas and lived experience? So, at a certain point, I only really write... The simple answer of why I write about weird media is that I interact with it. <laughs> why not write about what you're dealing with, you know? So. It is really interesting that, like, found texts and messing with them led you to finding your voice, which seems almost paradoxical, which seems, like, almost, like... The opposite of like what one would think would happen. <laughs> That's yeah. probably true. I mean, I think there's one way of thinking about found poems as like being the master of a text. Like I'm gonna, 
you know, change this text into something else. Like, I think that's where found poetry really starts. And if you, if you're one of those people who, like, you see a newspaper article and you're like, now I'm just going to copy and paste this and it's going to be poetry, I don't know, it sort of feels like you're being the master of it. Like, I'm going to reframe it. I am doing all this stuff to sculpt it. And I don't know, I think I went into the Jogs project really thinking that the book could do a lot for me and that I was just going to sort of deal with it and maybe it would come up with a cool project and in the end I think it did um but totally I just I feel like that contributed to like all of my like lived philosophy the book also did a lot for you oh totally like yeah it, it seems like a cool switch to me to go into thinking about like you're gonna get all this wealth from something but it rewards you in like a, a longer and more sustainable way maybe than you originally thought like, yeah and especially especially a book that I maybe went into thinking would just be sort of funny like yeah. Oh man, like gay people are so different in the seventies, like that kind of thing. And then actually, I was like, oh wait, there's like a lot of like emotion in this book, and and it's important to remember it's written by um, a doctor whose name is Charles Silverstein, and by Edmund White, you know, one of the biggest gay fiction writers ever. And so you know, if you have a person whose like entire career is based on like writing books about what gay life is, and then he actually has to do it quite literally, like this is what gay life is. Um, imaginary gay reader um, who's like presumably like in the closet or needs to learn about gay life like I don't know I think you're gonna enchant it with a little bit of like emotion that maybe wasn't supposed to be there in the first place or something I think it's sort of a sad book I don't know I sort of maybe I was just sad when I read it but, um, what but is sad it, about it to you um there's just like okay so the way it's it's arranged by subject or by category so it's like um the first one maybe is like anal, like so then there's the passage on anal and it's gonna be describing to you how to do anal and it's like make sure you're safe and like make sure that um, you know that it's very sensitive in there and then another passage will be on blowjobs and it'll be in, like an instruction of how to give a blowjob. Um, and there's all these different sex positions, ones that I had never heard of or whatever. Um, and then there will just be sections called like loneliness. like what do you do as a gay person who is lonely? The f like, gay gayness is an inherently lonely position. Pre-internet. <laughs> yeah, this is especially pre-internet. So, um, you know, you've basically got cruising and the communities in, in, like, centered around buildings that you frequent or something like that. Um, but loneliness. So imagine before, like, it's loneliness and then the next section is, I'm trying to think of an L word. Um, I can't think of one. So let's just go with, like, loneliness, and then the next one is poppers and the one before is like um like man hunting or something like it's like you know sex position sex position and then in the middle it's like depression there's an there is actually a section called depression um and so it deals with these emotional things and it's sort of it's not just about like living a gay lifestyle in the sense of like this is how you do gay sex and this is where gay people hang out but it's also like <laughs> what do you do when you're gay and you're also really sad? Um, or what do you do when you're gay and, like, you have a drug addiction or something like that? Like, so I think it's, like, sensitive in a lot of ways. Maybe sad was the wrong word, but it's very sensitive to the fact that, like, gay life... Needing a manual on how to live gay life is not as simple as, like, this is how you uh, fist somebody safely. It's, like, also, like, this is what you do when, like, all that's done and you're home and you're, like oh, this is bad, or something like that, so. You have to laud it for being a comprehensive approach. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's very... <laughs> also, what does it mean to employ a fiction writer to contribute to a how-to manual? 
What is who, that? I guess they just thought he would be good at it because he can write sentences well or something like that. And then the other guy's like a medical doctor, so it's like... Gonna punch up those fisting descriptions <laughs> with some adjectives. They're re- I, that's, I mean, that actually that poem that I submitted to Bedfellows and that's published in it was like a, was a sort of rejected poem from... Not rejected, but later written from Jogs. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was... The, all the words in that poem are from the original section in The Joy of Gay Sex, and it's called Fist Fucking, and it's like, remember to use vegetable shortening, or whatever, and it's so 70s, and it's so, like, medical, and it talks about, like, anal tears, and all these very safety things, like, totally unsexy. There's nothing about this description that you're like, this mm-hmm. is a, this is making me really want to get fisted. Like, actually, everything about this section would make you think, oh my god, let me never do this in my life. Um... But I think inside of that, you can sort of reveal all these like little things about like how sensitive and difficult gay sex is. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, think a us, lot of people do even, that. We, we knew about the project in that context, but we were still like, this never comes up in poetry. And if we if it has, we haven't seen it. Like we sort of right. thought of it still like it's funny. You're taking this like outdated text and then you're sending us a poem with language from that text. And we're viewing the poem as this kind of like radical thing that we want to put out in the world like everybody go read about this right, right, now. Like, right. putting that language in people's faces still in like 2016 yeah and I think as an like as an editorial choice but also as like a writerly choice like to even title a poem fist fucking um and to be like hello everybody I would like you to read this mm-hmm. like there's polite gay sex <laughs> poems that I've read there's, exactly there's, yeah it's, it's raunchy and it's a little difficult and, um, you know, I think that that poem is actually sort of frightening, uh, does not make you want to get fisted, as I said, and, you know, what do you do with that fact? Like, that's another reason that I don't really market jogs anymore. It's, it's, it, it's really difficult to market. Like, half the poems are named with things that you couldn't print in, like, a family publication or something like that. So that's already one sort of publication issue. And that's also why I self-published it. Um, because I just wasn't going to go through the work of, like, sending it to a bunch of people who would, like, open it, and the first poem is rimming, and they're like, ah, let's maybe not. <laughs> so, you know, I just sort of went with it myself. I was, I, that's one of my regrets about it, is that I self-published it, but I also understand why I did it at that point, you know, being, I was, what, 19? Like, it, it, I just can't imagine a 19-year-old really and truly being like, I'm going to get this poem about um, Smegma, like, published, and people are going to critically like rave for it you know so how do we make fist fucking more marketable <laughs> i think it's the attitude of the reader is also like complicit in this you know yeah right i i don't know i mean there's there's a question of like do we want it to be more marketable i think yes i don't want to be that person who's like let's leave it in the like underground or whatever so um i mean ask kathy make... acker right <laughs> well i mean kathy acker can do it and so many people have been able to write about sex in a good way. And probably, actually, Alina, you probably have better thoughts about this than I do, honestly. Um, how do you make really raunchy sex more publishable? That's and a great question. Without veering into erotica, which is... Without erotic. veering into, like, the idea that it's, like, genre, right? Yeah, exactly. So, and maybe that's something that people want to veer into, because the erotica genre is full of amazing things. But if your goal is, like, I'm going to get, like, John Ashbery to like my poem about fisting, like, what do you do there? Ah, well, actually, John Ashbery is a bad example because John Ashbery probably loves fisting. But maybe um, <laughs> Billy Collins. Okay, <laughs> Billy Collins likes... Does Billy Collins like my fisting poem? I'm not sure. Well, Harrison and, <laughs> Keeler read this <laughs> Exactly. Like, can we get NPR... Can Ira Glass, like, ask me about my 
vegetable shortening butthole like that kind of thing like <laughs> i don't know that's a big question that i really couldn't answer <laughs> I really want to do, like, an Ira Glass voice being like, Gabe, tell me about your Crisco hole. But, like, I don't. Your what? Crisco hole? Crisco hole. Wow. (laughs) Okay, so we're moving semi-chronologically. You have Night Chickadees and you have Jogs, and then what came after that? Um, So after that was, well, technically, I think I wrote Oil and Candle and this other project at the same time. But the next published thing was Where Everything Is in Halves, which was a chapbook about... Uh, the Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker, specifically that game. Um, and I spent like a f- one month of my last summer in, I guess, May and July, uh, May and June of 2015, um, playing The Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker, um, illegally downloaded on my computer, and replaying, really, because I played it when I was a kid. And what I did basically was I forced myself to frame everything in the game through the lens of the passing of my father, which happened when I was in sixth grade. And so that was, it's like an extended thought experiment and one that was a little cruel to myself. Um, But um, one that I think came out with a lot of good results. So the way that book worked was it was just like one poem per dungeon in the game. So it's arranged by like temples and dungeons. Um, And I just write one poem per landscape and per level basically and that I think is the most explicitly like sad book (laughs) that I've written and I don't always go there to like let's write like a a sad poem but that's like definitely the thing that I would say got the closest I think it still has a lot of humor in it I mean you can't really not have some humor about that premise um but it came out good I think um (laughs) so yeah um and then that was that was published later by Alexandra Naughton. Um, at some point, I read it in front of her at a reading, and she was like, "Do you want to do some sort of ebook thing?" And I was like, "Yeah, let's do it." So that came out really well. And then um, how did you? What's all discipline? Were you just like, "It's summer, I'm gonna torture myself"? Or? <laughs> I think really honestly, probably the the series of events was I was like, "Let me play the Wind Waker," and then I was like, "Okay, but if I'm gonna play the Wind Waker," That's going to take a lot of my time. Let me use it in a productive sense. And then I was like, maybe let me write a couple poems about it. And then at some point I came up with this (laughs) conceit where I was like, um, well, I have this game about this like young child whose sister is kidnapped and now he has to cross the seas to find his sister. Let me just attach that (laughs) to this like traumatic memory of mine or whatever. And let's write through it. Um, who knows why I picked that? Honestly, I could not tell you because more than a little bit after halfway through the project, I was like, why did I choose this for myself? This is terrible. There were days where I was playing and I was writing and I was just like, God, this has made this game so not fun. Um, but not fun. Sure. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It was not always fun. Um, and probably I would have enjoyed it more if I didn't write those poems. But I actually think that I sort of discovered a lot about that game um, through doing this writing, like, I sort of put the game under an amount of pressure, like, the same thing I said about the share stuff. I put the media under pressure by a premise, and I came out with some good knowledge about the media, but also about some of my own personal stuff, and also some poetry stuff. So, um, like, one of the things that I think I sort of, like, gathered as an interpretive 
piece about the game is like the way the game works is um, the world is divided into individual islands and you anytime you want to go do something else that's available on another island you have to cross the ocean and you don't just it's not like you just press a button and you cross the ocean you literally have to like manually go through the ocean on this like red boat that you have and the end of the game um, when you kill the final boss he says to you like why would you fight for this world? Like, why would you put any energy into saving these people? Damn, All of that's you live. Cold. It's really hard. He's like, yeah, he's like, because his whole thing is like, he's going to destroy the world or whatever. He's going to be the powerful, whatever. Um, you know, typical video game final boss stuff. And he says, like, all of you live on islands. There's just massive seas between you. None of you know how to interact with each other. Like, this world is really lonely and terrible. Um, I don't know why you're fighting for it. And then it ends with like a giant water crashes through the ceiling and it get, gets rid of him and then you live happily ever after, your sister's back, whatever. Okay. So, you know, if you're playing this game without any premise about like mourning or anything like that, you might just be like, yeah, right, like this is like, oh, you know, people are like difficult or whatever and sometimes human interaction is difficult or something like that or maybe you're not even thinking on that level and you're just like Ganondorf thinks this world is bad but Link thinks it's good okay but if you put it under that pressure I think it sort of realizes like a little bit about what the mourning process looks like and um how under the duress of certain like emotional hardships uh it feels a lot like people are more geographically distant not just emotionally but everybody seems everything seems a little bit farther away and so that title, Where Everything Is in Have, sort of relates to that. Um, imagining, like, the mourning process as its own world, a world that's put on top of another one. And in that world, everything's cut in half, it's really far away, everything's on its own island, and anytime, anytime you want to do anything, you have to literally cross the ocean. Well, I think that helps you figure out a little bit about the game and what the game is like. It's a, I think it's a, a pretty sad game, even though it's very sunny and tropical and blah, blah, blah. Um... And a little bit about your morning process. So I think that's sort of like my point, I guess, in the sense of what can you do with what could be called like dumb media, media for kids, media that is entertainment or something like that. You can pull out a lot of like gems from it, sort of. So the premise was not fun for me on the daily, but I think the poems that come out of it do a lot of interpretive work that couldn't have been done otherwise without a difficult premise like that. I also am interested in you playing it as a child, and I don't play video games, but the music for me is an emotional encapsulator. Is a video game an emotional encapsulator too? Like when you go back and replay a game you played as a child, is there some like sense of feeling that comes back? Yeah, I think so, and I think part of the reason I chose that premise was just the sort of like, was the nostalgic aspect. Um, so that game I did play while my father was still alive and while he was sick, and then and I played it in his house, because that's where my GameCube was. Um, and so there are a lot of games where I will remember when I played them, or um, a lot of times actually something that happens is I'll like remember the music I had listened to. Like there's one Fire Emblem game that when I played it, I only listened to Antony and the Johnsons. And if I play it, I like can only think about Antony and the Johnsons. Like I don't even, like I almost like hear it in a sense. Yeah. So there are some sort of like coded things that I guess are just, you know, neurochemistry or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and that helps with a premise like that. Um, 
I think it's sort of like it would be naive to think that a game that you spend 40 hours playing could not impact you emotionally and like people say things like oh video games make you numb but like that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because it's like I'm spending so much time doing this especially that game is quite long um you know maybe we're if we talk about Candy Crush maybe we'll talk about it differently but a game that's that long and that difficult and takes such a commitment like depending on the point where you are in your life like it will affect you in different ways so I played that when I was young and in a transitionary period of my life and then I reenacted that transitionary period um and yeah I think I think I think like I I also played it's funny that you mentioned music but I because I like played a lot of albums while I was doing this project I didn't listen to the music of the game um and I listened mostly to like Rasheen Murphy um and this is slightly embarrassing, but I just listened to, like, a lot of Sufjan Stevens, um, which is probably just, like, masochistic at this point. Like, I'm doing this, like, sad project about my dad dying, and then, like, I'm playing, like, Sufjan Stevens. And he has like, so many morning songs. Guitar- exactly. He's, like, like, talking about his Greek mom and uh, this whole thing. Like, yeah. so it was probably a little masochistic. And I listened to, this is slightly embarrassing for a different reason, Father John Misty. Um, that's embarrassing because... I don't really like Father John Misty. And King I feel of the like, DBs. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, I, he's just such an asshole. And <laughs> But there are some songs that I really like. And I feel bad about it because I just, like, see his beard and his life. And I'm just like, oh, <laughs> God. You both like overalls, I think. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's something. It's, it's funny because that, like, the album that I listened to had all these, like, terribly sexist songs. And I'd just be like, oh, my God, please, you're killing my writing vibe. Like, let's just go. Um, so Rashi Murphy was the was the number one there. She was really good. Very good, like, clubby gay songs with, like, too much, like, artsiness for their own good sometimes. And then, like, Sufjan was me being, like, an emo kid. And then Father John Missy was, like, tapping into my, like, I don't know, whatever predisposition to, like, asshole folk. <laughs> like, asshole neo-folk. That was, whatever like, gets the work. Yeah, right, around. I guess, you know, it, it worked. In the end. Like a complicated music studio. You're like, mm, just a touch of toxic masculinity and this will be just perfect. A touch, just a touch is actually a kind phrase. Just, just a pouring of <laughs> toxic masculinity into this, like, weird folk song. Like, That's how you make a poem. <laughs> It's all about process. I mean, people people always ask about, like, process questions. It's such a common one. And mine is literally just, like, I sit in my room. It's probably one in the morning. I have nothing better to do, so I'm writing. And I'm playing, like, a song that has nothing to do with what I'm writing. Like, sometimes very inappropriate. Like, you know, like, Britney Spears, Give Me More. And I'm writing about, like, I don't know. I, I can't even think of a subject matter. But something that has nothing to do with Give Me More by Britney Spears. That is my writing process. And I'm usually, like laying down my laptop is on my like chin and I'm just like oh what word sounds good here oh that sounds bad well, I'm just gonna cut that out and then I, I finish know. and I end up feeling kind of bad about it <laughs> from where I'm sitting it sounds like a you're regimented and b well also having red oil and candle your life is rooted in ritual <laughs> That's true. and I think both That's of those true. things seem to apply to you if I had to guess that how your process could I'm just over here taking notes. I'm like, hold laptop as close to chin as possible. Make your make your arms really truncated. The more like, terribly contorted you are, and the less comfortable, and the later it is, and the more you regret not having gone to sleep earlier. That I feel like is when the real writing happens, um, and that's a process. Um, yeah. yeah, oil and candle. I think like that's a lucky one because I like discipline myself to do it. Um, like, the Aure Caminos poem is, like, written over seven days. It has a very specific ritual to it. The text is not really changed. And 
So that's great. I was like, oh my God, I'm like a real writer. Like I have a discipline here. I have a process. It's related to this like ritual practice. And then uh, the unfortunate story is that most of the time my poems are like hacked up at the middle of the night and with like weird songs playing in the background. And I'm full of just a little bit of regret that I even started. <laughs> that's that's my vibe, I think. That's a beautiful <laughs> like a ritual. Yeah. Maybe um, not a glamorous one. That's true, that's true. <laughs> Will you read us something from sure. Oil and Candle? Whatever you would like. Okay. Um, By the railroad, at least 15 pairs of panties just in this block. I think of the women dipping themselves into tubs full of prescribed cleansing, getting the toxins out of their body and into their panties, and putting their panties where they know they won't see them again, because the trains go so far away from here. Thank God, because nobody else does. There is a telltale sign of a neighborhood's makeup in Miami. Can you hear chickens clucking when you close your eyes? If you can, it's time to be very, very friendly. The hair I found in the little plastic bag from my ex's friend's place was thankfully not her hair, but not so thankfully, it was her mother's hair that the maid cut in the middle of the night because the mom gets very drugged out to sleep, and it was thankfully never acted upon, but we googled it and most sites said she would have had total control of my ex's friend's mother if her ritual was completed. Once the maid was fired for her attempt at black magic, my ex's friend's mother scanned the rooms holding burning rods of sage. I didn't sleep that night because of the story of how the maid said ghosts were calling her on the landline. The men in my mom's office who she mostly despises all wear white one day a year. Fifty men in white suits, and I forget for what holiday that is, but it scares me to think of fifty men in white and my mother in some cardigan. She gives me good advice, saying, no creo, pero respeto, as in, we don't want to get hexed, but my abuela brought us up Catholic, and I stopped believing in that when my prayers didn't turn my friend gay and didn't stop anybody's cancer in my family, of which there is a lot. So every year, 50 men come to work in white, and it scares me to think of that, not because I don't believe what they do, but because I can't stop and get the symbolism straight. What is white for again, and what does this candle do? My abuela said to my mom to put those black beads on baby me and baby Francisco so that no one would curse us with their eyes. If someone says your baby is cute, you are supposed to say malditos sean sus ojos, which means cursed be your eyes, which is odd because it still uses the formal tense and because maldito kind of means fucking as an adjective, but my mom said that she didn't want to dress us that way and I get that perspective. I got a few gigs after using a candle that I felt was easy and simple to use, and that made me very happy and satisfied. But when I finished using the candle and it was all burned out after seven days, I didn't know how to dispose of it since it was my first time, and I had to call the botanica and ask. And the worst part is, I had to Google the word for dispose because I had forgotten, and didn't want to be so informal and just say ponerle el zafacón. And they said I really should just put it in a trash, which felt weird to say the least. But I did it, and in my dorm, the trash is a long metal chute, not a bin, and I had to hear it go all the way down after asking myself, is this recycled? My family likes to joke that you should pray to San Dimas if you are having trouble finding parking, and to do it we clap our hands and say, San Dimas encuentran un parking. And really it works every time, and one day my mom explains that he is the penitent thief and that you are supposed to pray for him to intercede, and this whole time I thought we were just saying the name of a woman, Sandima, who found us parking and always worked. My boyfriend one day tells me that in his family there was also the killing of chickens, and I say that chicken killing didn't happen in my family, at least that I know of, but it did happen in Miami quite a lot. But I'm still glad that we have something in common, even if it means the heads of many chickens. Cool. Thank you. <laughs> Such a pleasure to hear in our little studio. <laughs> 
So this book is quite literally a winner. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I hadn't thought that. Yeah. Um, it was a winner of Timeless Infinite Lights Tracked Contest, which was their first open submissions contest um, for what they call tracks, which um, I think MG, one of the editors, once called it the novella of poetry. It's like um, not so full length, but just a little shorter. Long, Much longer than a chapbook, but a little shorter. So... Uh, what, this is like 75 pages or so? Um, so yeah, so, you know. Uh, and the other focus of the track contest, I think, was uh, speedy publication. Um, not something that, you know, as most poetry presses take like two years to put it out. And um, politically focused. They're focused on something that is happening now, so to speak. Um, something with a sort of activist disposition. And so I had this... I had Abre Caminos, which is the long poem at the end of the book, um, which I did while I was in school, and um, I just did that on my own. No thought of uh, a larger manuscript or anything like that. And then I went to San Francisco for the summer, um, where I met the Timeless Infinite Light crew, um, hung out with them, hung out with a lot of people in the Bay, and at some point I saw this contest, and I was like, I'm going to write something specifically for this contest. I'm going to finish something that would work for this. So I had Abre Caminos and I had Poem for El Igua, which is one of the page poems that's in there. And then I had another poem called Any, which is the second or third poem. I can't remember. And so I needed something else, something that would round it all out and give it what I wanted it to have um, in light of the contest. And so I wrote this poem, Limpias, at some point in my Bay stay, maybe a month or two in. And we were just talking about the Zelda project. It was probably, I remember writing both things at the same time. So those two things were happening simultaneously, even though they're pretty different. Um, so I was like, uh, Abre Caminos is a very long and sort of not funny at all poem. Um, very analytical. It's so like... I don't know, something about it definitely says I was in school. Um, and I was reading all this war theory, and it was all just coming through. And then, so I was like, let me get something that feels a little more uh, humane, <laughs> human, uh, conversational, funny. Um, and so somehow I, I, realized, I realized that the tangent between all these poems was Santeria, or um, basically just what I was seeing in my growing up as Catholic folk magic or Christian folk magic done by the exile community, done by a lot of Latin Americans um, living in the United States. And so I just wrote about my experience with it and talking about how I had interacted it with myself, like as a practice myself, or how I had seen it um, interacted with, things like that. Um, I used the phrase adjacent to um, with Jai Arun Ravin in an interview. So, okay, my life adjacent to Santeria, something like that. And on my mind were all these different um, racism controversies in poetry. And I realized that that was part of Abre Caminos, and that was part of Poem for Legua. And so I was like, okay, let's round it all off. Let's write this last thing, which became the first poem, um, which I just read from a piece of. And... I don't know how it's, I sort of just, I guess I started by saying, okay, I'm going to imagine this like sort of ridiculous, absurd scenario in which I have this bottle of oil, this ritual oil, and I'm going to 
empty it out and then I'm going to put all of the racist poets inside of it. I'm going to put the canon inside of it or whatever. And that's the imagined premise. And it's somewhere in there I decided they should be in my belly button. And so I got the imagined ritual is that I take them out of my belly button with tweezers and I put them in the bottle. But there's too many of them and they break out of the bottle and I'm like, oh my God, what I do? And it's sort of like a breakdown as the as the as the poem goes on, it's sort of like a realization that my idea is not going to work and actually turns out quite badly. So, and then in the middle, I have that section that I just read from, which are just like anecdotes, really, of of interaction with Santeros or um, witchcraft and folk magic in Miami. And I think a lot of times people have asked me, why are these related? Um, and that's a sort of hard question to answer. But I think it was just that I wanted to understand what ritual practice was in the sense of dealing with what conceptualism was, which was at the sort of forefront of a lot of these racism controversies with the work of like Kenny Goldsmith and Vanessa Place um, and later many others. Um, so I was trying to figure out what conceptualism was. As we talked about earlier, like I sort of grew up poetically in a lot of these forms. So um, Jogs, for example, is, is a, a book that I write reading a lot of conceptualists and reading people who use um, procedural writing. So I'm like, okay, what do I do now uh, as a Latino person um, if this writing practice has these sort of inherent difficulties inside of it? And so that's what I'm working in, and it comes up with a very anxious, unanswered answer. <laughs> um, it's not a good answer, I don't think, in the sense that it doesn't give you a resolute way of understanding what a writing practice should look like in 2016 or whatever or what like minority writing practice should look like um and also I'm just basically writing about like as we were talking with Pokemon Go like being feeling like walking around in the world is sort of a difficult premise so as a queer person um as the child of political exiles um or if you're not using that like nice word that the US government assigned to Cubans, um, political refugees, things like that. So that's where it all starts. And then I just put it, sort of put it together and I sent it away and they liked it. So I'm very glad for that. Um, and then it became this book. to record the goodbyes. So we really want to thank Gabe Ojeda-Sage for coming on the show. Uh, you were awesome, Gabe. And since we didn't give you a chance to say goodbye, we asked you if there was a song you would like to play you out. So from Gabe to our listeners, this is the Fishhead song by Barnes and & Barnes. And we'll see you next time on Poetry Barnes. the morning laughing happy fish heads in the evening floating in the soup poetry johns is recorded in south philadelphia by alina pleskova and emma sanders the theme song is by dan king and audio editing is by michael messina anything you want to they won't answer they can't talk See